Hello everyone, my name is Lauren. And I'm Cooper. And we're the Thrive Initiative. We host meaningful discussions with professionals in the fields of mental health and neuroscience. We hope to spark conversations surrounding mental health, provide teenagers with resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just a quick reminder that the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please check out thriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals. Dr. Beth Pinels, clinical psychologist and wellness consultant, partners with superintendents, school administrators, guidance and youth program directors to craft a personalized emotional wellness program that addresses existing systemic challenges and accesses existing resources. Her initiative, Own Your Peace, was established in 2007 in Needham, Massachusetts, and has acted as a model for developing a healthy culture in schools and youth organizations. We are so excited to have her here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I'll just jump right in with the first question. So for our listeners, what's your background in the mental health field and could you describe the work you've done? So I'm trained as a clinical psychologist. I've been doing this for probably 30 something years. And um, at first my practice really entailed a more traditional route, which was seeing people in my office, seeing individuals, couples, families, um, and developing some expertise areas. Some of them had to do with family and couples work. Some of them had to do with adolescence and some of them had to do with eating disorders. Um, also in my course of study, I was focused a lot on very universal issues versus psychopathology. And one of the things that arose was suicide and then suicide prevention. So that was a longstanding interest of mine that lay dormant until um, some things happened in my community of Needham, which I'll tell you about in a minute. The other thing that I wanna say about my practice is that I started to feel through some other community and um, volunteer work that I was doing that I could impact large systems of people if I was approaching the work through some different venues. And so it became clear that if I could work in systems that and create changes of culture, that it would have a very large impact. The last thing that I will say is that one of the core tenets of my work, since I do a lot of work with teens, is that teens can have a very powerful impact and can drive change. And you guys are a terrific example of that. So what inspired you to start your initiative, Own Your Peace, and how has it evolved throughout the years? I'm wondering what the impact has been in your community. So teens inspired me to start Own Your Peace and actually did start Own Your Peace. Um, several years before Own Your Peace was created in its current form, Needham, like so many communities, suffered a rash of suicides, many of them teen suicides. And oftentimes we see them in clusters because there is a, is a contagion effect. And many times people categorize a community as sort of having a dark cloud hanging over it. But in fact, Needham um, helped us understand that so many people were experiencing this in the towns and cities in which they lived, and yet you could actually respond and make a difference. And so following this group of teen suicides, the community came together 
in a very powerful way. And there were people from all walks of life in leadership in this suicide prevention coalition. And people work together to not only be able to respond appropriately when a crisis and tragedy occurred, but also be able to work preventively. And so my involvement in that led to running a subcommittee of that group called the Youth Education Team, and we involved teens. And shortly after that started, where we had one or two kids your age working on this project, the teenagers at Needham High School started to get more immersed and said, wait a second, we really don't want to work with the adults at this point. Um, we really want to do this on our own. And so I worked with them as kind of their guide um, and as a clinical expert in the field. And pretty soon the students decided to shift the emphasis from prevention because there had been healing in the community and lots of resources and supports put in place to we're going to be able to focus not only on illness but on wellness and that's where it is now that sounds amazing and it's really interesting to hear how the community really came together to work together on wellness and have these discussions and make these changes um, and i loved what you were saying specifically about teens really getting involved in the work and how have you seen students respond to your work and how have you witnessed shifts in the culture surrounding mental health at the schools that you've worked with? Well, the most important things um, are that one, mental health is talked about, that it's something that people feel increasingly able to share, um, ask about, um, go to help for. And, um, um, but the research on Own Your Peace over several years of time is that um, students feel that they have an expanded perspective regarding the nature of their problems, a deeper awareness of other people's problems, increased open-mindedness. Um, oftentimes, we come out of a week that's called Own Your Peace Week at the school where there are assemblies and um, activities every day and homeroom classes and after-school events and community service projects. And the kids often say, there's always more to a person than meets the eye. And I didn't realize that. I never knew she felt that way. I never knew he had that experience. And so it's very eye-opening. Um, there's also a lovely thing that the research tells, which is that students feel an increased sense of gratitude. And we know that you have to be at a certain level of awareness and health and pause in your inner peace to be able to feel grateful for good health, for families, for the blessings in their lives. Um, and last, there's a feeling of um, having community, of being less alone, knowing that other people struggle the way you, you might and we all do, um, and an increased willingness to help. Um, so we do find there's a bottom line, and schools are interested in this, which is that more students go for help. Speaking on that culture um, and the culture shift, I. I think that at least I see it at my school, and I'm sure this is how it is at a lot of different high schools. Um, there seems to be a culture that's competitive surrounding mental health, and people seem to try to kind of flaunt how stressed they are and how little sleep they're getting, how anxious they are. And words like depression and anxiety and stress are just thrown around with such little meaning. Um, how does this contribute to the negative culture surrounding mental health? First of all, I want to comment on 
that phenomena because we do hear exactly what you're saying, which is kids almost bragging about their sleepless night and they stayed up and only got one hour of sleep and they're so anxious they couldn't do anything. And um, it's kind of curious. And so one thing to think about is that I think that we're all looking for ways to feel unique and special. And I think sometimes when it, the environment is so competitive, it's really challenging to figure out how am I special and unique. So these kind of bragging pieces can almost become a badge of honor. And if you can't be the best at an extracurricular, um, the best athlete, have the best grades, then you might try having the best anxiety or the best record of not sleeping. Um, however, those records take on a life of their own, and I think they breed even more anxiety and less sleep and depression and isolation, and it's a hard cycle to get out of. Um, the other, the risk in competing in those ways um, is that it minimizes the true experience of mental health challenges and also becomes confusing, I think, because clinical depression and anxiety are huge intrusions in someone's functioning. And so there's a big difference to say, I'm afraid of spiders, I don't really like them. And oh my gosh, I can't go to any outside gatherings because I'm terrified of spiders and I have a phobia around it. And I actually have had to give up a lot of my friendships because everybody gets together outside. And that's just a little minimal example of the big difference between someone saying, you know, I'm anxious or someone bragging about it in a way and trying to sort of build it up in a way that it isn't um, compared to something that's really clinical. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, that when we throw around these terms, we're really minimizing the experience for those who are experiencing these clinical illnesses that are really getting in the way of their everyday functioning. Kind of on a different topic, but still related, is how can schools promote emotional well-being and prioritize mental health for their students? And if students feel like their school isn't properly prioritizing mental health and well-being, how can they initiate change? So let me tell you a few elements that I think are really helpful when you're creating a wellness program at school. The first is that it's really critical to get buy-in from adults. And there are a lot of choices in terms of adults. And this also comes up in terms of who can be resources for you if you're struggling. There are administration, which is a key player if you can get the principal or the assistant principals involved. There are counselors, and that's their job. These are people who have trained because they want to support students emotionally, sometimes academically. Sometimes there are separate supports, but I would really encourage every team to go find their guidance counselor. And if they don't like them, see if you could talk with someone about shifting. Um, there are teachers, coaches, advisors who can partner with you. And if that really brings a dead end, you can also think about sort of the parent-teacher organization at the school and wonder if some parents can help you be a bridge in a way, um, or the school committee in the town. Um, the next thing is something I mentioned earlier, which is about branding. It seems kind of strange to imagine branding mental health, but I think anything in our lives that we want to sell and communicate and have really wide um, knowledge about has to be marketed and communicated about. So um, the schools in which I consult use posters and e-news and assemblies and bring in speakers and you can kind of create a day of learning about mental health. Um, that brings me to the next thing, ingredient, which is it's really important to make resources known and accessible. Some schools have apps that all you got to do is hold your phone up and you can make an appointment with your guidance counselor. Hopefully many guidance departments have sort of an open door where you can walk in. And if not, it would be really helpful to create that. Some nurses offices at schools have 
places to go for respite and tools and just a, a quiet, safe space uh, with actually activities and puzzles or meditative things that can be soothing if you need to take a break. So professional development I mentioned, I think it's really important for faculty to learn about the signs and symptoms of mental health issues, and also for staff to understand about supporting their own emotional wellness, because how can you be a model and support others when you're not in touch with your own feelings? And lastly, I would just say that with Own Your Peace, we always say it is not a club, it is not a group, it is a culture, and the entire school is a part of it. And whether or not you're in a leadership group planning activities or you are attending different events or learning venues or doing something through a curriculum in a class, which happens at times, everyone is a part of it. Yeah, and I think that's really important because it, first of all, it's so inclusive. And also, I think it just makes it, you know, definitely there's a sense of community. And also the way that you implement those consistent activities each year it's almost something to look forward to and something that you can really enjoy and if it's interesting and informative and engaging i think that definitely kind of leads to a, a good association with mental health conversations and mental health in general um, rather than just once every year assembly about suicide that's very somber and then you know nothing is talked about for the rest of the year. And another thing that I wanted to add was your point about having that space where, I don't know if it's in the counselor's office or kind of near it where you can just go in and meditate or do puzzles or some sort of soothing activity. I, I just love that idea because I think going into a counselor is a very vulnerable thing. And I also really love the idea of having a space like that because at school, there isn't really, like sometimes when you're going through something during the school day, you just want to be alone. You don't want to be talking to a counselor. But, you know, I have been at my school and in the bathroom and people are in there crying and just trying to, you know, like take a breath. And I think there just needs to be a space where teens can go just to be alone and just to kind of like stop and pause for a second. Because sometimes they just don't want to talk it out. Sometimes that's not what they need. Um but I think, you know, going to a bathroom stall doesn't feel very relaxing or recharging in any way. So I really, I love that idea. Yeah, the bathroom should definitely not be the designated wellness area. Speaking on the subject of teens seeking help and finding ways to kind of help um, their mental health and well-being, how can teens seek help, whether at school, out of school, and what are help-seeking behaviors? So um, I'll continue a little bit on the bathroom thing and um, also simultaneously talk about um, like how do you support one another as teens around mental health issues. Um, what the bathroom thing versus the nurse's office or a quiet room off an admin's or a, the counseling office um, brings up for me is that there's a big range of mental health experience, right? And so if you're someone that really is anxious and you know you're anxious and you're going to therapy for it and you have some supports, but you really have some days where it's too hard to sit in your class or something happened at home that's really distracting you or there are just too many tests in one week and you start feeling so overwhelmed that you really need some space. You may need to walk or move. You may need to sit and do yoga for 10 minutes. Um, you may need to write in a journal and 
that's fine. And for that, you don't need to necessarily talk as you two are pointing out. And so just having a designated area where you can be and not be questioned could be really useful. And on the other hand, sometimes if someone is suicidal or extremely depressed, or there's sort of an acute unexpected incident that this person is not braced for in some way, it's really, really important to get adults involved. And the students with whom I work really wrestle because on one hand, oftentimes your friends may come to you and not be telling an adult. And it's a very big responsibility. And I'm gonna use a word that we use often and it is gatekeeper. And we're all gatekeepers as if there's sort of some gateway or doorway into the world of resources and supports. We can all be helpful in sort of shepherding each other into that and ourselves. Um, and there are different ways to do that. One is to be educated about mental health. And so to say, oh, you know, why is my heart racing or my stomach upset every day this week? Or to say, wow, that person looks really not like themselves. Their behavior has really changed. I can't figure it out. They're especially quiet or maybe sort of unusually talkative on the other hand, or maybe they seem sort of out of it or they can't stop yawning. And the behaviors may not always on first glance look like a mental health issue, but when you see something that's a big change or you hear something like, I feel really hopeless or I think I wanna die, you have to respond in a different way. And so I think for teens, um, help seeking behaviors for yourself can be saying or for others can be actually bringing that person to the right support. Um, I think I'll just say one thing about help seeking behaviors first, and that is that some, in a simplified version are negative and some are positive. So we often see negative help-seeking behaviors because there's nowhere else someone knows to go. So a lot of times if you see challenging behaviors, symptoms of illness, drinking, too much partying, eating disorders, like different things that are more visible on the outside, that may be a sign that this is the only way a person can figure out to cope with it. And also these things often start by unconsciously surfacing as problematic. And then you figure out afterwards that there's a messaging, I need help in a different way. Positive help seeking behaviors means actually reaching out on behalf of yourself or someone else. So um, I think it's important to feel more comfortable and familiar with mental health syndromes, with thinking about how do I know if someone isn't okay. And these are things that hopefully wellness curriculum at school could provide maybe guidance, maybe student groups could get in speakers on these topics for faculty as well, in fact. Um, I also think it's really important ahead of time to access resources and to know them. So while a guidance staff and psychologists are the the obvious choices at school. It's really important if there could be an activity or exercise or Instagram post or poster that says, who would you go to if you needed to talk? And I think that you don't always think of the, the obvious ones um, or the subtle ones. Like for instance, um, we know that from research, at least 50% of kids in most places choose their parents as the people to go to. And while it might not seem so cool to wanna to go talk to your parents, it's very familiar and it makes a lot of sense. But if your parents don't feel safe or comfortable or like they have the tools or know how to receive what you're saying, you can go to a different family member, an extended family member, an older sibling in some way. 
probably a younger sibling might feel overwhelmed and might not be able to help in the same way. You could go to a coach, a clergy member, an advisor, a teacher, someone you know in the community, even the, the parent of a friend could be a good person. So you're right, it's hard though to take that step and to go. And so you might go to a friend and you might either give them hints or say, I wanna die, I'm not feeling okay. And what I would suggest if someone comes to you with something that even seems a little bit like that is to immediately say, look, we really need to talk to someone who's trained to help in some way. So I would really try to fight that instinct to keep it a secret, to keep confidentiality, because in the end, you really have to support someone and you're not in a position to do it all by yourself. I know earlier we were talking about how it can be really confusing when people are just throwing around these terms and talking about how stressed or anxious or depressed they are. Um, so I'm just wondering, how would you approach those different situations? Um, because it is just such a normal thing that's thrown around and some of it's extremely genuine and some of things are just kind of on a daily basis. That's how someone's feeling that day or that hour, just that moment after they've gotten a test back or something happens. I'm really glad you asked that. And it brings up a very good, very simple strategy uh, for any concerns that come up from anyone. And that is to always ask more, to be curious. I think that it's when we shut someone down, don't really respond at all, that either they keep going with something that's meaningless in some way and sort of not as big and important or they feel ignored and feel much more despair so i think it's really helpful to say oh tell me more about that even and that pertains to someone saying i want to die it doesn't actually hurt the situation more i think it's a myth that many people are frightened of that if you ask when someone says that it's going to make them want to kill themselves more and that isn't a fact so for any situation, I think it's helpful to say, how often have you felt that? When did you feel that? What's the experience like? And while you're not trying to be their therapist, it shows interest, it shows care, it shows that you see them. And then it help, can help to decipher whether someone's issue is really a momentary thing and a small thing, like I really wish I got a better grade on a test or a bigger thing. You can still ask someone how they are and check in with them and give them that support without being their therapist. I think a lot of times adults kind of say like, that's not your responsibility. They can actually go to someone who is licensed and has, that's their job. That's what they do for a living. But there is, that shouldn't discourage teens from actually helping someone at all. You know, if, if you really are seeing a need, we all are, we all are struggling through our own things. It's so important to support each other through them. Um, even if you aren't you don't have the credentials or that's not your job. Um, I was just going to say, I don't think teens can go wrong with checking in and active listening. I think that can go a long way. I'm wondering how teens can start conversations regarding their mental health with family members and peers and teachers. And how can these conversations be more of a um, norm and a more regular thing? I think starting that conversation is really difficult and speaking to friends and people that I'm close with, I've heard that they don't, they're reluctant to starting the conversation because they feel like 
their struggles will be a burden on their family members or people that they're close to and they don't want to hurt them just because they're hurting themselves. So I'm wondering if you could just offer any advice on that. Well, I love that question because it already empowers teens to be the ones to take a step, which I think is really important. I think it isn't easy, you're right. If you already feel distressed, down, anxious, um, you don't have a lot of energy, you have fear that you're gonna be stigmatized. And like you said, Lauren, people could really end up feeling like you're gonna burden someone else and they don't wanna do that. That said, it's so critical to know that when you're in a close relationship, it actually honors the person with whom you're close to share your deep feelings. And so in a way, it's really a gift to them, not a burden on them to share. And how incredible it is that we can help one another, especially someone we love. So here are some ideas about that. Um, in terms of direct ways to start the conversation, I think it's important to say to yourself, can I be the one to start an interaction at home and reach out to family or even extended family? Can I ask for a designated time? Like for instance, saying, I'm really feeling scared, confused, sad about something and I could really use your help. That sort of empowers the other person to help you, kind of honors them. I think in general, the other piece of it, which responds to your question about how do you do it, it's awkward, it might be out of the blue, it might shock someone or sadden someone, is to try to create, just like we talked about at schools, try to create at home a culture of awareness. So what I really wanna do is tell parents who are listening to try to create this because it really is our job as parents to set the stage but teenagers can do it too, and it can feel very rewarding and empowering. So be curious, just like we talked about a few minutes ago, be curious about anything family members do, might feel. Don't just say, what activity did you do, but say, what was it like to do it? How did you feel doing it? What did you get from it? Would you ever do it again? Why not, or why? Um, set aside time without screens. Kids I work with, as much as we love our phones and computers, talk a lot about family dinners and times when people just throw their phone in the basket and put it away for a little while. It's just really distracting. Um, find activities that everyone can share. Let each family member pick an activity or a meal to cook um, or music to listen to at different times when you're together. Um, buy or create games that include open-ended questions about feelings, or you can even make a game like that at home by cutting up scraps of paper and putting questions that are about much bigger, more philosophical life issues and feelings in a jar, and then you pick a few out each meal or each time you're sitting in a room together. Uh, I think those are all important, and I love the idea of rituals, but I think having traditions, having things that people are used to doing set the stage for times that are much more challenging and makes those things go much more smoothly and comfortably. During the pandemic, teens have been massively disconnected from their peers, teachers, and school community. We've also been dealing with an array of difficult emotions. So how can teens navigate these challenging times, especially while we're disconnected from our school and social life? Great question. And this is something that teens and adults and little kids have been talking about for months and months now, way longer than we ever expected. So I'm gonna offer you something for fun that you can use in the future about this question. And I'm gonna give you an acronym for THRIVES, since it's rele relevant to you. Um, so here are some ideas. Um, so T, the beginning of THRIVES, take care of your basic needs. 
especially your body. We have one body, we're given it as a gift. Hopefully many things in our bodies work right, but we often have things that go wrong or sometimes have permanent conditions to deal with. But getting these basic needs met, like sleep, because when you don't sleep, you get anxious and depressed, literally. Your brain works in a different way. Nourishment, movement, taking deep breaths, these are all essential to our wellness. H, next letter, help yourself and others. Think ahead about the resources out there. As we talked about, don't wait until you have a crisis to think, who would I go to? And think about the Own Your Peace slogan here, own your inner peace, your inner wellness, and own your part of the community. And I think when we give to others, by the way, it also is very rewarding and nourishing. R is for relationships. For me, this is a core of our existence in many ways. So while you're home, let yourself take advantage of all of the things that you wouldn't have had time for in the setting that you have now that you're stuck in it in some way. Um, maybe be with your family more. And if that's stressful, create regular social interaction or connect points with a family you choose. A lot of adults who are living away from their families use that slogan anyway, like the family I choose, friends are the family I choose. And so it's really important. Um, listen to your inner thoughts and feelings and think about, you know, how do I connect with people? Build it into the schedule again, as you were saying, Cooper, it's really important. Okay, I, be inspired. So um, I think it's a really special time to be motivated and think what moves me? What's gonna compel me to do something to grow? We have time to do things that we never did. I hear a lot of teenagers talking about listening to music in a different way, expanding the repertoire, trying new recipes, an online workout, movies with friends at the same time. Um, and think about the forces that are bigger than us, like learning, nature, faith, longtime community or family traditions. Let yourself kind of expand in that way. So V is one of the most important things to me, and I'm using it for vision, a positive future. One of, in psychology, let me step back, one of the things that we talk about are preventive, protect, sorry, protective and risk factors. And risk factors make us more vulnerable to mental health struggles. But protective factors like having a community around you, knowing who your resources are, those help us be stronger and combat it when stressful things come along. So I think it's really important to let yourself vision a positive future because that's one of the biggest protective factors we know by the research. Think about where will I travel to? Who would I want to see? What will I do when I grow up? Um, let your imagination wander because the pandemic is going to come to an end at some point and we have the space to think now. And the last two are E for expectations. Um, shift your expectations in this time. We cannot do what we used to do. I hear a lot of kids talking about being afraid they're not building their resume for colleges. Well, colleges know we've all been stuck at home. You can't do the same clubs and extracurriculars. Um, know that everybody can't concentrate on Zoom all the time if they're not at school um, or even in a hybrid model. It's really complicated to get your focus on things. Um, find replacements for activities that you do um, regularly where you need to be physically distant. So an alternate sport, venue, art, dance, create a play online instead of doing your theater at school, that kind of thing. Um, and academically, just keep in mind, like everyone in the entire country and world, for that matter, are going to be shifting their requirements and expectations. And the last letter of thrives, I'm adding an S at the end because we, <laughs> we can do that with words, um, is, is a really important and simple one, which is about structuring your days. 
structure, and we talked about that a little bit um, in many ways, is so critical to our well-being because it helps us not have to think and just allows us to do the things that keep us healthy. So use bullet journals, calendars, put up little notes as reminder, do different activities in different places. It's really healthy to kind of find different rooms or different parts of a room if you only have one. And we need to think with an equity lens, which we could talk about at another podcast. Um, but we, you know, people don't all have different rooms in their houses. So do something in one corner, do something in another, hang out with your friends in one place, do your schoolwork in another, let yourself um, take breaks in between things and structure them in. Um, and use ritual, use your routines because rituals that we do with our family or ourselves can really make space and time sacred. And I think right now it's something we need to remember that despite the illness and the political landscape and all the complicated things that are going on that we need to be aware that our lives are sacred and that they're going to go back to normal sometime and that our mental health is important. Oh my gosh. I, I, I love that acronym. I was, that made me like so happy to hear. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are so honored to have had you on the Thrive Podcast and look forward to working with you in the future. You offered such great insights and information and I definitely learned a lot. It was phenomenal to learn more about your work and its tremendous impact. Thank you for your time. You're so welcome and keep doing what you're doing. You're such wonderful role models for all teens in the country. Thank you so much to our listeners for joining us for episode four of the Thrive Podcast. We'll see you next week with love, the Thrive Initiative.